Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, right to work in Wisconsin. And Richard, we've got new developments in Wisconsin, one of the centers of some of the major labor debates that we've been having over the past couple of years over the right to work law in the state. Uh, we'll get to the substance of that fight in a moment. Why don't we start, though, by just a basic explainer of defining our terms? Can you just give our listeners a basic sense of what right to work laws do and a, and a sense of their history, where they come from? Yes, well, the history begins with the passage of the Wagner Act in 1935. And what this did was to announce a very comprehensive regime in which the following features were dominant. One is an employer had to bargain in good faith with a union which became the exclusive representative of the entire workforce, dissenters and non-dissenters included. If the union was able to win an election uh, by half the votes in a bargaining unit established by the National Labor Relations Board. And the only unfair labor practices under the National Labor Relations Act in 35 were those that employers committed against employees. In 1940 to 45, the entire statute was essentially suspended because of the war. And then afterwards, uh, the statute, which was supposed to bring industrial peace to everybody, turned out to trigger a huge strike wave as unions having an enormous amount of monopoly power uh, put forward very heavy demands on companies. There was a lot of disruption in business. Uh, Senator Taft and Representative Hartley uh, put forward a bill called the Taft-Hartley bill, which changed this arrangement in a number of ways. One of the things that it did was to create a set of unfair labor practices that unions could commit. And on the other thing that it did is it gave the states the option uh, to decide that it could allow workers to warp, basically opt out of union membership. That is that they had a right to work free from being a members of a particular union. Uh, now, this then gives rise to essentially the following debate. Uh, can the state require the or the government require the non-union members to pay dues to the union and essentially prop it up? Or in effect, when you have a right to work law, uh, there's no agency shop. And the union has to represent these workers, although it doesn't give them all the benefits that union members get, but they do not pay dues to the union. Uh, so there's this constant question about extent to which a union whose origin is a majority rule, not in unanimous consent, can dictate the lives of its individual workers. And Taft-Hartley tried to undo but not repeal much of the key provisions that were found in the 1935 Wagner Act. So let's speed up to today, Richard. Wisconsin passes a right-to-work law last year. A county judge in Madison has now overturned that law under an interesting rationale using the takings clause of the Wisconsin state constitution. The argument here being that the labor unions basically had a property right to the dues they were receiving from workers and that the right-to-work law amounted to confiscating that property without just compensation. Now – to this layman, Richard, this seems novel, to put it charitably. Uh, what? Explain for our audience, what's the judge's argument on his own terms, and, and what do you make of it? 
Well, I mean, I've never heard of such a particular argument, but you stated it remarkably accurately. Unions depend upon, of course, some agency fees, uh, that is from non-members, to do their political and their non-political work. There is now, on the opposite end of the political spectrum, a huge movement to say that forcing any dues out of dissenting workers, that is the agency shop, is unconstitutional because unions necessarily have political views, whether they're doing economic bargaining or political lobbying of one kind or another, and to force people to contribute dues to a union, in effect, creates a situation in which people's First Amendment rights are violated by making them pay for speech in which they do not believe. That was the issue in the Friedrichs case, and the Supreme Court essentially deadlocked on it 4-4 after the death of Antonin Scalia. It was very clear to everybody from the oral argument uh, that essentially the agency shop was going down. It would have been a 5-4 vote. Uh, but that whole thing did not come to pass. And now from the other end of the political spectrum, what we do is we have a different constitutional argument which says these dues constitute property rights, the state has abolished them, so the only way that the state could abolish this particular property rights is to agree to pay the unions the exact amount of money that they would have gotten from the workers. Um, and this makes it a very odd statute because could you imagine the position of a union? It can basically ignore all of the members who are people who are not members of the union get a guaranteed a state stipend and have its own political base stronger than it was before. So if the right to work war meant what this judge did, and if the Constitution required what he said it did, then unions should be begging for right-to-work laws because the only time they will pass is when they have to give them compensation, and it means they don't have to worry about all those pesky dissenters who otherwise make, make their lives very difficult. So in terms of the previous political history, uh, this statute sets – or this case sets everything upside down on its head. It now makes right-to-work laws the friend of the unions rather than their enemy. This ruling has already – out of Wisconsin has already invited a lot of derision on the right. But of course in the big picture, that's less important than the reception that it's going to receive on appeal. How should we think about that? Is this the kind of ruling that is so sort of facially weak that it doesn't stand a chance in the higher courts or does this have a reasonable chance of being upheld? Well, I mean, one thing to note, there was an election and a conservative judge was, in fact, elected to the Supreme Court in the state of Wisconsin. And on this one, you're certainly going to have huge political divisions. It is perfectly clear that there's not a single conservative judge that will endorse this theory. Uh, given its novelty and rather bizarre contours, um, it may well be that one or another liberal judges will depart from it. Uh, but generally speaking, in these rather troubled times, constitutional arguments come free and fast and and I think it would be a mistake for anybody to say that simply because this one seems to be off the wall, that it seems to reflect an understanding of how right-to-work laws uh, operate that was never anywhere in the history from the passage of Taft-Hartley uh, close to 80 years ago, uh, that uh, 70 years ago rather, that the whole thing seems to be extremely bizarre. Um, the way in which you could measure its bizarreness is I think to take a closer look at the constitutional theories and the sort of factual presuppositions on which this decision rests. There is an assumption here, sort of similar, I guess, to the one we saw in Friedrich's case out of California that was before the Supreme Court recently, that you have this clear free rider problem, that workers benefit from the terms that the unions negotiate, whether or not they pay the dues. So the only equitable approach is to mandate that the union be compensated for those efforts, even from non-members. That's an argument that is sort of – it's sort of made with free market acoustics. Does it persuade you on substance? 
Well, of course, what happens is it's a very odd argument because the argument made in in Friedrichs was exactly the opposite argument. These are not free riders. These are compelled riders. They're being forced to join a particular union and that many of these individuals would rather have no union at all even if they didn't have to pay unions. Union dues. So uh, if you were to ask somebody like myself about the way they feel about it, I regard unions as a major obstacle for people who have ambitions for excellence. You join a union, you can't get individual investment by directed relationships with an employer. You have to go through the union contract. And so uh, your promotions are going to be thwarted if, in fact, by being a union member, you cannot get the kind of confidential information or the trust of the employer, which allows you to learn the business. So upwardly mobile individuals should probably not want to be members of a union. Another difficulty with union membership is that it's very heavily weighted towards the senior members of this particular union. They're the last to be fired. They're the first to retire. Many of these people are willing to take very aggressive stances in terms of negotiation uh, because they know if anybody's going to be laid off, they'd be the last one to go. And the newer workers at the bottom of the pyramid will, uh, in fact, be the ones who are most vulnerable. Um, and then there are, of course, the very deep ideological divisions that people have. So uh, to say that this is simply an economic relationships and a clear case of free riding misses, it seems to me, uh, the huge source of complication that comes when the union is allowed to succeed by getting a majority vote to begin with. And in fact, if you really want to get rid of all the ambiguities associating with free riders, you should change the basic statute and say that the unions can only represent those individuals who join and then say they don't have to get a majority of the workers to do that. But at this particular point, you couldn't have exclusive bargaining arrangements and employers would refuse to deal with unions. Uh, so the whole statutory framework is designed to prop the unions up. And if it comes with this particular blemish, I think that's sort of part of the whole package. And that the opinion of the judge, which says that this is a simple free riding problem, simply underestimates and completely misstates the dynamics of this. He also made another very serious mistake. There is something in labor law known as the duty of fair representation, which says that a union, when it has its power, has to treat all of the people whom it represents equally. Uh, the only cases in which this has some modest effect are cases where there are explicit and overt forms of racial discrimination, the key case being from 1944, a case called Steel against the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. But since nobody knows what the equitable arrangement is for wages of workers of different seniority and in different tasks and in different plants, nobody's been ever been able to use the duty of fair representation to override the uh, inequities that can easily emerge when you're just having economic bargaining uh, through the union representative. So this duty is, is treated as a bulwark of protection, but if you juxtapose it to seniority rules on the one hand and recognize the huge amount of fluidity on the other, then you realize that this is a very weak remedy for a very serious point. And if I were in the position of a worker that in a union that I didn't like, I wouldn't want them to have a duty to treat me fairly. I wouldn't believe it was enforceable. I'd want to be able to go at it to myself. So I think on all of those grounds, the factual predicate of this case is a vast oversimplification, um, as is its treatment of right-to-work laws. But essentially, this is a very sloppy opinion in terms of its sort of fact-finding. Everything is ipsedistic. There is no testimony taken on this, no consideration of the reverse position, and no recognition that the Friedrichs debate had actually taken place. Let me take you from the law to the rhetoric for a moment. The argument that is made over and over again by unions is that unions solidify middle class workers. The bumper sticker version of this is that if, if you like weekends, thank a union. 
Is that the right way to think about the union role in labor markets, even historically? No. I mean, I think it's just completely wrong. I mean, look, there is a very early period in which one understood what the case for unions were about. And it wasn't about middle class values. There were very powerful places, particularly in the South, where if workers were not protected by unions and you were in a segregated society, employers would hire them, promise them wages and beat them off if they actually demanded for them after the work was done. And if you have a breakdown of contractual enforcement, then it seems to me that there's a case for the unions. But the moment you have a functioning legal system, the contractual enforcement issue is much less important. And then unions become a source of um, union of, of monopoly power. And you go back as early is you know 1910 1920 union violence against firms that tried to sell into the marketplace using non-union labor were absolutely part and parcel of the course so the coronado coal cases from the 1920s involved situations where unions would come and shut down non-union coal plants who intended to ship their goods into interstate commerce and chief justice taft writing for a very uneasy but clearly united courts said you know these are transactions intended to disrupt the interstate commerce and so the federal government can stop down the union blackmail under these circumstances. There was always violence on the other side by employers. In fact, there were violence on both sides. But the notion that somehow or other uh, this problem arose because um, of, of the greedy capitalists, it's not the case. The moment you introduce a union, you now have bilateral monopolies. Uh, uh, one guy has to deal with the union and the union has to deal with this guy. And those bargains can easily turn ugly. What the great advantage of a competitive market is they can make incremental changes without genuine frustration. And before the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, the so-called Yellow Door contract, which said that a an employer could demand loyalty of a worker. That is, so long as you work for me, you have to agree not to be a member of the union was, I thought, the exactly the correct way in which to do business. But uh, the history of the law before or the working force before 1935 does not say that unions solved everything. And if you start looking at wage levels, one of the things I always like to point out is there's a recent book by Robert Gordon. And what it says is the greatest period of human advancement in the United States and probably in the world was 18 1970 to 1940, and it's not a coincidence that those are the years that were covered by the pre-National Labor Relations Act regime. Um, so if you're trying to figure out what worker progress was right, in the period in which there was market hostility towards unions, you see wages rising, you see larger participation of women in the workforce, you see lower, shorter hours and lower mortality rates, all of these things coming together. None of them was the consequence of union involvement. Let's close out in, in prospect. Going forward, to what degree does politics hold the key to whether unions maintain their stature? By which I mean we all know that unions, especially in the private sector, seem to be atrophying. Are they going to end up marginalized regardless or can politicians and the courts in some measure prop them up? Uh, there's no question that uh, the down the downward trend is secular, it's long, and it's powerful. And the explanations for that are things that unions cannot reverse unilaterally. Um, if you start looking at globalization, the moment you lower tariff barriers, then uh, there are fewer monopoly industries at home, like the public utilities, and there are fewer gains that unions can get from organizing because they can't get the essentially um, they can't get milk from a stone. If there's no rents to them to expropriate, they can't 
can't get them. It's also clear that workforces are heterogeneous, much more variation. Firms tend to be smaller. Uh, they tend to pop up and disappear. Very difficult to organize them. Franchising is an extremely important way of doing business with all sorts of independent business justifications. So generally speaking, it's going to be hard for unions to get a foothold in the modern global economy. On the other hand, if you change the legal rules, you can really make a difference in the way in which some of these things go. And that's the effort on the part of the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board, all of them, uh, to have rules that make it easier for unions to get information about potential members, make it harder for employers to try to speak to workers and, and to protect them, their own interests, to call for quickie elections and the like. My view is that these things actually matter, and one of the reasons why I believe that is unions push so hard for it. But if you think that this is going to get you to go from about the 6% private unions you have today to 20%, forget about it. That's just not going to happen. Employers are too determined to oppose unions, and the technology is essentially too hostile to unions for this to happen. But, you know, if you go from 6 to 9%, it's going to have a real effect on the economy, and it's going to increase the union treasuries by 50% to something close to that, so it can make a difference. So I think the answer is this is not Armageddon, um, but the reason why it's such an epic struggle is that there is, in fact, a lot to say on both sides of this particular debate. And that's why, in effect, since right-to-work laws have been taken over in the conventional fashion in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Indiana, not in Illinois, and we know which of those four states is really in the doghouse, I think it's extremely important to recognize, and we could talk about it on some other show perhaps, that right-to-work laws paradoxically actually improve the position of union workers by giving competition to the union. If people can quit the union, the dues will go down and the services will go up. And that's what's happened in many right-to-work states. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.